So we are ready to go. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this Monday with our very special guest, who I will get to introducing in just a second. Um, before we get kicked off today, I just want to go over some quick housekeeping, not rules, but things. Um, you know, we really love having an engaging conversation, right? Um, so we want you to turn your cameras on, come off of mute, and really participate in the conversation. And if you don't feel comfortable coming off of mute, turning your camera on, you can always feel free to write in the chat and I will be happy to read those comments or questions out loud. And if there's anything that you want to, you know, ask or comment anonymously, please feel free to write me privately by clicking on the chat box and hitting the drop down menu and finding my name, Nicole Felton. Um, and so this is being recorded, so no need to take feverish notes. We really want you to be present right now. I know it's really easy to get caught up in multitasking, but it is not actually a thing. So we would love you to be present in the moment here with us, um, and we will send the recording afterwards. You can go and take some notes. And just want to shout out that if you do indeed come off of mute during the recording that you will show up on YouTube and you'll show up on the Power to Fly platform. Um, and lastly, keep up with us on social, you know, follow us at Power to Fly on all social handles and then subscribe to our YouTube channel where we are live streaming all of these daily chat and learns. All right. And so with that, let's get to know our special invitee. So today we have Regina Wallace-Jones from MindBody. Regina currently serves as Senior Vice President of Product and Engineering at MindBody, while also serving as Mayor for the City of East Palo Alto, California, which is no easy feat, I'm sure. And previously, Regina worked as Chief of Staff at both eBay and Facebook. And so, Regina, please, you know, anything you want to chime in here, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Sure thing. So thanks for uh, the introduction. Uh, I am uh, so excited to be part of this community today and I really have been thinking about what to say and what to share for a good 45 days. Um, notwithstanding my, my EA who's been pinging me every day to say, did you did it? Did you nail it? Did you nail it? Did you nail it? Um, so I finally, I finally did sort out what I wanted to say to this community because it is so special, um, it is so important, and it is so timely that we be engaging now and that we continue to engage on topics of importance to, uh, to all of us, including our allies. So I'm looking forward to today. And Nicole, I want you to tell me, um, do you want me to get started or do you have more to say before I jump in? Perfect. So I am just going to shout out quickly that, you know, to follow MindBody on Power to Fly, I'm going to drop the link in the chat. Um, but Regina, you know, if you want to kick us off with, with anything before we actually dive into the questions, you can feel free to do that. I'll go on mute and I'm going to drop the link right in the chat. Okay. All right. So I did prepare um, a couple of remarks that I kind of wanted to take us to a lot, talk, take us through along with some slides, but I can hold on that if, um, if you uh, mainly want to do Q and A, um, and you tell me what's the best use of the best use of of time, because it's probably going to take me about twenty minutes or so to get through the prepared remarks before I would be ready for Q and A, or we can dive right into Q and A. 
Oh, I love this. All right. So how about this? If you, the audience would like to drop it, jump into the presentation, how about you drop a one in the chat? And if you want to jump right into Q and a, please jump a two, you know, um, I want this to be about you. Perfect. We got a one in there. One. All right. I am seeing an overwhelming amount of one. So Regina, I can stop sharing my screen if you would like, and then you can go ahead and share your screen. Okay. Perfect. Give me one second. All right. All right. I'm going to share and I'm going to be daring and hope that by sharing, you guys get the right screen. And uh, let me see here. Can you see that? Sure can. All right. Let's start there and I'll put us in um put us in project so that you don't have to see my notes and all the goodies that come along with it but i want to begin by expressing my deep gratitude to power to fly it's an organization that i've only known for just over a year but has been one of the most generous communities that i've engaged with in my entire career both as a partner co uh, company and also uh, as a community contributor we're all clear, but just in case, I'll reiterate that countless studies have shown that diverse teams perform better than homogeneous teams. Uh, but without focused solutions, gender parity throughout the corporate ladder won't be achieved for at least 100 years, which is daunting, dare I say terrible. Power to Fly's mission is simple, to encourage diverse recruiting and hiring, by building tools and employer branding services that emerging businesses and enterprises need. So I wanna to reiterate to you, Power to Fly, how much we need you. And I want to thank you for driving hard after a mission that we all care about. Today, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about leading authentically through triumph and adversity. And I'm going to do it largely through storytelling. Uh, there's three reasons why I've chosen storytelling. The first is it's one of the most powerful ways that we can connect. The second is it's one of the easiest ways for you to remember what I actually said. And the third is we're all working on something. And right now I happen to be working on improving my storytelling. So I hope that you will journey with me through this and, uh, and work with me to get better as a leader as well. There are a couple of terms that I want us to all uh, lock brains on because I'm talking about leading authentically through triumph and adversity. So I think it's pretty important for us to know what does that mean? How is she defining it? Are we defining it in the same way? Uh, so for me, authentic leaders are leaders that are self-actualized individuals who are aware of their strengths. They're not strong in everything, but the things that they're strong in, they're aware of. They're also aware of their limitations and their emotions. The most important thing is that they show their real selves to their followers. They realize that being self-actualized is an endless journey and that it is never complete. So we're not going towards a destination. We are simply on a journey together to be better every day. For triumphs, I want us to think about it as a great victory or achievement. And for adversity, I want to think about it as a difficulty or misfortune. So today is really about leading towards our best selves amidst great victories and misfortunes. And a couple of the stories I'm going to share with you will help highlight this for you. Um, 
while I'm also sharing a part of me. And my hope is that um, we'll learn together how to be better every day. My goals are to be real, to be relatable, to be reflective, to be rounded, and to be resoundingly clear. So tell me in the end if I hit all the R's. And I picked R's, of course, because my name is Regina. So story number one, on academic training and education, I'm frequently asked the question, how did you know what to study to reach your career success? So picture this. I'm an 18-year-old graduating high school senior. I'm a first-generation college student with two parents that both opted out of undergraduate experiences for their own reasons and for their own stories. I've grown up in San Gabriel Valley, which for those of you who are familiar with Southern California, it is one of the suburban sprawl areas uh, that is sort of steeped in a big valley ditch. Um, I sort of know what I'm good at, but I'm beginning to see the orthogonality between my interests and the areas where I show strength in intellectual capacity. Said differently, I can see that I'm great at math and science, but I'm uninterested in math and science professions. So my first answer was to seek degrees in both areas. And my pursuit was to find a life that allowed me to actualize in both. By the way, I don't yet see myself as successful in either but I do see myself in incredibly strong pursuit. So I wanna call your attention to Chadwick Boseman. Those of you who have been watching the news know that um, he departed from this world, some would argue too soon. He was 43, passed away last Friday. And one of the quotes that I lifted from him um, and added to this presentation is exactly how I feel about life. We don't have to think about it in relationship to God, he did, but higher being or however you think about it, when I stand before that thing that created me at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say I used everything that was given to me. Um, I think that that is one of the most powerful quotes that I have ever uh, internalized and it exactly aligns with my philosophy on life, my philosophy on leadership, and my philosophy on being utilized um, and actualized as an individual. So I want to dedicate this to him because I do believe that he has gone too soon. So now reflecting on my storytelling, um, I want to point out something that's really, really important, and that is when we all think about our careers, but certainly as I thought about mine, that we're really looking for the Venn overlap between what presents in our personality, who we are as a person, what presents as strengths in our skill sets, um, what presents as interests, like things that just naturally draw our attention. And as I was saying, I was showing skill in one area but my interests were orthogonal. And so how do you sort that out? And then also bringing in, what do we value as individuals, as peoples, and how do we want those values to express themselves on the world? 
when we bring all of those dimensions together, if we're lucky, we're able to create a space that we call career. And for me, uh, being dual career is my way of saying there was no singularly perfect answer. And so I had to get really creative about how I found the overlap in my then by finding a series of things together that made me feel really, really well utilized. I do feel really well utilized. So I'm having a family. I'm frequently asked the question, how have you found balance in being a mother and a professional woman? The implications, of course, being that I have chosen to do both and that I have chosen to be on an impossible road. My answer to this is that from the moment that my ancestors touched soil uh, in America, that women worked and raised families. That's not a new reality for me. Uh, it's 400 years plus a reality for my ancestors in this country. And given that the conditions were much less favorable, I do consider myself very blessed in many ways to come from survivors that made a way to work and raise their families. Having said that, I recognize the spirit of the question and I do acknowledge that it is difficult at times to manage the tremendous conflicts that present and place weight on our capacity, our creativity, our attention, and most importantly, our time. These things are always at odds. So my secrets are, I've got an all-in partner, and my guidance to this community is choose wisely. This is one of the most important decisions that you will ever make. My second is to say, be open to supportive assistance. When I had my children, my mother-in-law moved in with us. And for two years, I felt like I was in competition with her. She did everything better. She cooked better. She cleaned better. She cared for the house better. Everything was better. Um, and at the year two mark, I realized that we were better together. So having her with us has really saved our lives. And my encouragement is to be open to the various ways that this will present for you. The third is be creative about gifting your children with the experiences that only you can offer them. For example, my kids are great makers. They just are. How in the world did that happen? The answer is that every day we give them something about our worlds that they can reflect on from an engineering perspective and make things. So what you see right in front of you are a picture of a prototype that my 10-year-old daughter recently completed. One thing that's true for all of us globally is that we're all experiencing the pandemic together, although we're experiencing it in different ways. And her perspective was that um, hand sanitizer should be something that we can access without our hands. She wanted to create a foot activated uh, sanitizer dispenser. So she asked uh, her dad to take her to Home Depot to get some PVC pipes. She built a prototype for what it would look like for her. She put her favorite brand of hand sanitizer in it. 
and um, and now it dispenses uh, hands-free. On the left, what you see is uh, a market research study that she launched this weekend. Uh, I was taking a, uh, a bath on Saturday, sitting peacefully in my bathroom, and in comes my daughter. She creates a desk in the bathroom, a mobile desk, and she says, Mom, I have produce these 10 questions and I need you to help me figure out how to put them in a Google form so that I can get them out to people and they can give me feedback on my design. Now, this is exactly the work that we're doing every day uh, in our technical fields. We are prototyping, we're building, we're engaging with customers, we're engaging with others to help us refine and make sure that we're building the things that the market actually wants. And what I know for sure is my 10 and my 12 year old have nailed this solid. And so why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing it with you because at some point I gave up agonizing and lamenting over what I couldn't give them. I can't be infinitely there because I'm going to be dealing with residents and I'm going to be meeting tough deadlines and I'm going to be chasing after things in many directions that are going to be pulling on my time. And they actually help me actualize as a leader. What I can do is bring them into that journey and I give them every day the things that I feel strong and confident about sharing with them that help them to see what my world looks like and how they relate to it. And that also builds upon the skills that they're ultimately going to need to be successful in their lives. This weekend, my daughter was thrilled to learn about market research with her mama and how uh, this skill actually is one that people make decent livings doing every day in tech and in other industries. I gave up on the idea that it was my alone time for that day because I feel like I seized something and unlocked something that was really important to her and to us in our relationship. So given that this is a community of women and allies, I'll also share that having children was probably one of the first major adversities that I dealt with in my life. And I'm spending a long time here because when we get to talk to women leaders, the whole world that revolves around family and children and how do you do it all is so important. So I want to make sure that I touch on all of the things proactively that may be on your mind and then I'm going to move to marrying and I'm going to move to tech as well. It took me eight long years to have children. As context, and this is what I want you to think about in the spirit of storytelling, I was not rich growing up, but I had parents that um, were very loving and supportive. I was not thin, but I learned how to work my God-given assets honestly. Um, I had a reasonable head on my shoulders. And prior to the point that I wanted to have children, everything in me taught me that if I work hard enough to make something happen, that it will happen. That was what my life had taught me and that's what my orientation toward life had been. Except 
My journey to parenting took eight years longer than planned. And it forced me ultimately to embrace that sometimes, no matter how hard we try, things don't happen as we wish for them to happen. So faced with this stark choice for me after eight years of trying unsuccessfully, I felt that I had to make a trade-off between high stress, high anxiety work and children. And about 12 years ago, I gave up my career completely. Not forever, I'm obviously back, but I gave it up because I had a hypothesis that high stress and high anxiety, which were both tied to my professional aspirations for what I ultimately want to be, were not exactly the best conditions to grow a family. So I gave it up. And ultimately, I did birth two girls. Here they are. Um, and I want to point out a couple of things about this. At the time that I gave up my career, I was simultaneously haunted by all of the stories of women leaving and never coming back and also being frowned upon by the men and women who never left. This, however, was the first time that I had hypothesized that stress and anxiety were enemies. Before that, they were signs that I was moving in the right direction. At this moment, they were enemies and that I possibly had to give them up to grow in a very important but different way. What I am proud of in the story that I want to land with you is that 13 years later, I haven't missed a beat, which is to say that we can allow the stories in our heads to haunt us. We can allow the judgments about what others will say about us haunt us, um, or we cannot. We can look at the counterexamples that show us that it's wholly possible to make a different set of priorities present at any given time and to pivot and focus on other things at different times as our life allows us to. I've done that. And I wanna make sure for those who are listening and who are trying to figure it out, that it is possible. I also want to reassert that part of the way that I've been most successful about this and with this is by bringing the children into the world that I live in as opposed to trying to create two separate worlds. So for example, when I was sworn in to city council and later as the mayor, it was important to me that I acknowledge the competitor that I had beat in the election because we're still neighbors, residents, wanted us to be friends. And so what I did was bought a huge bouquet of flowers. And what my children did was shared those flowers with, with the woman who did not win the race. And that was pretty important for all of us to sort of be in that moment together and to say that we are a continuum of each other, that there are no ill feelings here. And it was a way for me to teach my children how to win with a lot of grace and also how to show a lot of grace to the individual on the other side. So we pick opportunities like that throughout our life uh, to make sure that they are wholly present 
in the life that I lead as a leader and that they're learning from those experiences along the way. So I have two more stories and then we can cut to Q&A. The fourth is on leading and finding the perfect boss and growing your career. I often get questions about this and so I wanna proactively address by saying, for a substantial portion of my career, I did not relate the ideas of authenticity and work. Work was the place that you became who you needed to be to earn the money that you needed to earn. That's what work was. Work was not the place where authentic expressions or identities were conveyed or shared. This way of thinking about work has prevailed for many decades, particularly as women have continued to increase participation in the workforce. But the very obvious challenge is that workplaces have largely been molded around the preferences of men. So when we leave our authenticity out of the equation, the workplace is robbed of our extraordinariness. And more importantly, it is never challenged to change. We know that workplaces must continue to evolve to be welcoming to all of us. So I'm now on a journey to bring this person forward every day. And in so doing, create spaces that are welcoming to all of us. I have found in this journey that bosses really matter. There are many more mediocre to terrible managers than great managers, uh, and there are a few really great ones. Pick the boss who believes in your capacity and your potential. The second is, when you find that you've got a terrible boss, run fast. It might be a sign that you're either panicking, excuse me, picking poorly or running away from something in yourself, but run either way. And in so doing, sort out, is it me or is it they? So here's the truth for me. In my career, I've run from two managers. I'm open about this. Both of them were absolutely terrible. They were poor champions. They were poor at developing talent. They were poor at communicating, poor at relating, poor at seeing me. But if I'm honest, I was also not self-aware about how bad I was at being a great employee. I wasn't the greatest at building rapport. I wasn't the greatest at asking for what I needed. I wasn't the greatest at communicating with confidence and clarity my progress and my aspirations and also understanding what it means to be the holder of scope for any leader. When a leader has anointed you with part of their scope, that's a big deal. It's a big sign of trust. And so operating inside of that is an agreement and it is a dance and one that both you and they, he or she or other, have to be really good at and really comfortable with. So what I have found as a leader is that the ways that I really struggled when I was running are the ways that stand out to me the most among people who are direct reports to me. 
as my mother always says, you always get tenfold what you gave. So the things that jump out at me are the cases where I find someone doesn't quite understand what it means to be part of my larger scope. They're not particularly transparent. They have a hard time building rapport. And what I try to show is a lot of grace and support and being a developing leader in those areas because I also know that those are areas that I struggled in. I'm keen on being a good manager and I see in my direct reports all the challenges that I've had with this for uh, this very thing. How to own your incredibleness without, without leaving a space for others to be included. Um, I am a work in progress. We're all a work in progress and the important person, the most important person that we can control in any of the transactions is ourselves. So I'm going to go back and say, bosses are important. Pick them well. When they're bad, run. But as you're running, also evaluate what is the thing that you can work on. Because if you find yourself running time after time after time, what's probably also true is there are some things in you that need to be perfected and refined as a leader. So giving you that nugget. And then my final story, and it relates to a question that I get asked around leading. sorry, is how are you leading through a pandemic, through social unrest, through wildfires, through any number of things that seem to be hitting us uh, every day? Any one of these things is huge, important, draining, uh, all of them together, how do you do it? And I say this, as a mayor, It's hard, period. Anyone who ever tells you that when they ran, these were the things that they thought they would be solving are totally lying. In fact, when I think back on the things that I said to my residents when I was running, we were talking about more affordable housing. We were talking about removing traffic and increasing our transportation options. We were talking about enabling greater participation in the tech economy. We were talking about building stronger bridges with our educational institutions, and we were talking about building communities one neighbor at a time. I was so inspired by my platform, I believed it. I sang about it, everything else. Walked about it, knocked on doors, talked to neighbors and friends about it. And when I was sworn in as mayor, just three months later, we found ourselves in, um, shelter in place orders. It happened on my birthday, March 16th is my birthday. And I remember very clearly that we all had to go into shelter in place on my birthday. What did I start worrying about then? I started worrying about our most vulnerable residents. Um, I happen to uh, be mayor of a city that is um, largely working class community um, that is comprised largely of frontline workers and service workers and um, lots of people whose jobs were becoming at risk because of the pandemic. Um, we are also a huge immigrant community. Uh, we have a pretty large undocumented population. We have 12% of our residents that are uninsured. These are all things that stand out as challenges when you place a pandemic 
at, at the face of all of it. Um, and so immediately, like we did in most places in the world, we started um, halting evictions, but then we also started looking for what are the resources that we can bring to bear to make sure that when the pandemic is over, these residents are not buried under the weight of debt that they'll never be able to buy their way out of. When we layered on top of that, the protests, um, I've told many stories in many uh, places about my, um, my lack of participation in protests historically. It was the first time that I joined a protest. It was the first time that I negotiated with protesters. And for your information, I happen to come from a city that probably has a protest every week for something different. So we definitely, you know, have the spirit of protest and I'm good with that. What was challenging for me is that bringing people together when we're sick outside was a really hard proposition. And so I had to come to terms with my own feelings and belief about race in America, my own feelings and belief about unfairness and how important it was to show that the unfairness was a big theme for us in the face of potentially increasing uh, pandemic spread. These are hard things to do. And I remember saying to the first protester, the first protest organizer, is it possible for us to do a Zoom protest? I mean, can we bring everyone together and just kind of protest on Zoom and maybe televise it? And she was a 16 year old. Um, and she looked at me and she was like, no, like, no, that's not possible at all. Um, and so like when she was looking me in my face and hearing me say, I don't want you to do this and her saying, I'm going to do it anyway, any good mayor is going to be an enabler, particularly ones who believe in the spirit of protest. So what did we do? We gave her masks, we gave her water, we cleared spaces, right? We had the police force march with her, right? And even though she booked it right at a time when I had a board meeting and couldn't physically be there, I sent my remarks to her parents to make sure that the city knew I'm with her too. Um, and so navigating all of this, right, when you haven't even clearly articulated where you stand as an individual, where you haven't even walked your family through what your stance is, to then have to take stances for a community, a community of people is not an easy thing, but it is for sure guided by um, what I believe to be what it requires to be an authentic leader in that moment to bring forward with your, what your values and your beliefs are, and to bring all of those bear, to bear in your decision-making. So layered on top of that, of course, is our fires. And as I said earlier, we're getting fires from every direction, um, which is creating a real stress and strain on our people, right? Because even the things that we would normally do, like walk, right? To reduce a little bit of stress or to let off a little bit of steam, are things that we can't even do at the moment because the quality of the air is bad. Um, so all of this to say, leading through this, not at all easy. The thing that I want to convey to you is that if you're seeking balance, please do not be like me because my aspiration is not to be balanced. People talk about work-life balance. They talk about balancing their professions with their families. I'm much more of a subscriber in integrating all of these things together. At no point 
Do I ever feel imbalanced? I mean, balance, in fact, I'm the exact opposite of that. I am imbalanced, but my variables that I'm solving for is not a balance variable. It is a utilization variable. How well do I feel like the skills that I have are being utilized and expressed in this world? And it's also um, a satisfaction variable, which is how satisfied and happy do I feel doing it every day? And provided that my satisfaction and my happiness is high and my utilization is high, right? I'm not like wasting a lot of time playing Angry Birds or other things that are really like time sucks and killers of time, that I'm in my sweet spot. And that's what I want to offer to you, um, that it's really our journey to find what the variables are that we're solving for and to find the careers that are best tuned to that. So I do want to say, uh, as, I, as I bring us up to questions that will uh, most assuredly come my way, um, one thing is, uh, someone asked me the question, how do you find your sense of wellness and balance uh, in all of this? Uh, and I've already addressed, I don't have balance, but my wellness go-tos, particularly during all of this pandemic, protests, fires, uh, was five key things. The first is I added a meditation regimen. This was something that I had never been able to focus on. I never had presence of mind uh, to be able to, you know, kind of really just be quiet without my mind wandering to a thousand things. Um, I do 10 minutes a day, and for a good three of that 10 minutes, my mind does wander, but I'm getting better and better at identifying where it happens and then reining it back in. And I've gotten to the point where my body craves that sense of centered breathing and focus to just kind of bring it all back in and bring me to a sense that I can handle it. So that's the first. The second is I do a three and a half mile walk every other day with a local senior citizen. Uh, this is how I integrate my city life into my professional life because I'm doing a three and a half walk, three and a half mile walk often to burn off the steam for the day. Uh, and, and this senior citizen, his name is Court Skinner, um, is doing the walk with me to share with me all the things that he observed in the city that day, which are things undoubtedly that I didn't see because I was working. And so we do this nice exchange where I'm hearing all the things and figuring out what are the things that I actually need to act on, but I'm also detoxing and diffusing from the day that I've had, and I do that every other day. The third is um, I have added a bath time regimen. Uh, so as I said, it was disturbed this weekend by my daughter who wanted to figure out her market research. But generally speaking, I will just have some tub time, focus time where I am relaxing and letting it all go. I added a podcasting regimen. So I actually go to sleep to podcasts on topics that are of interest to me. And they could be work-related, they could be parenting-related, or they could also be sort of just issue and city-related. There's tons of stuff out there, and it was a resource that I was not actively uh, utilizing or tapping. And the final thing I did was added reading uh, to, my, to my docket. So, uh, so I've always read. That's something that's not particularly new to me. Um, but I did notice that when the protests were happening, I needed to read a little bit more about the history of race in America. And I needed to hear a little bit more about what we could all think about doing from a leadership perspective to move the needle. Um, and as different topics are surfacing up for me, what I'm finding is that 
going to do a little bit more reading, a little bit more research, seeking understanding on the topic has made me so much more conversant, so much more knowledgeable, so much more insightful about how I can uh, sort of steer and lead and, and be an active voice of, of a solutioning uh, amidst the problems. But it's also created a greater sense of control and centeredness in myself because when we don't know, Sometimes just not knowing uh, adds to the sense of disorder and lack of control. Um, so my ultimate goal for you in this session is that you fly, that you soar, um, that you take uh, some of the stories that I have and apply them to your life, um, that you tell yourself any story that I have is okay because it's my story. And I just want to sort of close by saying I'm very open. Uh, so if there are more questions that this conversation has brought forward for you, I'm very happy to engage with you uh, and to ask, answer some of those questions. So Nicole, I'm gonna give it back to you. Amazing. Regina, you know, I was originally so excited to moderate this chat because I mean, you're incredible, right? Like that's no secret. And, and even more so just listening to you speak, I feel like you were just saying so many things that have been on the top of my mind for so long. I was getting really emotional as you were talking about your family and bringing all of that in because I, I just really love everything that you said. And I also, I find it really helpful that you shared these five things that you've kind of incorporated into your daily regimen to be able to uh, take in everything and process everything and move forward. And so you know, with that, you're going to have to share that list of, with us of the books and the podcast, because uh, that is absolutely fantastic. So thank you. And thank you so much for doing this. Um, I found it really helpful. And I know we have some questions coming in, in the chat. And so, you know, I would love to lead with those. Um, I just want to call out here again for anyone who's joined recently. So these conversations are exactly that conversations. And so I have a list of pre-submitted questions, but if there's anything that anyone would like to ask at any time, please feel free to come off mute or write in the chat. Um, and so let's start with the first one that's dropped in the chat. Um, so what does a chief of staff do? I'm not familiar with that term in corporate America. Oh, uh, it's a good question. Uh, so the, the term chief of staff was actually born out of the government. Uh, and if you think about what uh, a chief of staff might do, for example, for the president of the United States, they are effectively running the White House while uh, the president is running the country. Um, so they would, you know, work really, really hard to make sure that everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing at the right time. Uh, so that when it's time for that instrument or that part of the orchestra to play, that they're ready to play. Um, uh, and so you can imagine that a chief of staff, at least in the White House context, kind of looks like the, um, the hamster that is running on the wheel, making sure uh, that, there is, that there is power generating the rest of the administration. Um, and in the corporate context, this uh, title and this, uh, this body of work is becoming wider and wider. Um, you will see lots of uh, CEOs, for example, who are um, uh, uh, employing a chief of staff. Uh, and part of that is because CEOs often spend a lot of time sort of out uh, among customers, uh, 
in the media, uh, if it's a publicly traded company, they might be spending time with investors, et cetera. Uh, and there's still this very big body of work for the company around how do we engage with these things that are coming up? How do we make sure that we're prepared? How do we organize our stories, focus on our themes, get our execution right? Um, and so depending on the company, um, many leaders, uh, not just CEOs, but chief executives uh, in general or senior chiefs in general, turn to this role as a way of helping to balance what they individually need to focus on and what they need the rest of the company to be doing to help enable what they're focusing on. Um, so I was uh, both a chief of staff, uh, I was a chief of staff in actually three different uh, companies. One was uh, at Yahoo, one was at Facebook, and, uh, and then one was eBay. And, um, and in each case, I was working uh, First, for the uh, head of infrastructure, who you know was supporting over the 400 million, the, the over 400 million uh, users that Yahoo had at the time, and grown beyond that. When I moved to Facebook, I was uh, chief of staff to the chief security officer, uh, and when I was at eBay, I was chief of staff to uh, to the senior vice president of seller experience, who is now the uh, CTO of MindBody. So I moved to MindBody from eBay with my chief. Wow, that is incredible. And thank you so much for asking that. And thank you so much for elaborating on that, Regina. Um, and so again, if anyone has any questions, you know, please feel free to drop them in the chat or come off of mute. Um, perfect, we've got another one in the chat. Um, and so Isabella asks, how do, excuse me, Isabel, how did you exercise power and influence if, slash when as COS chief of staff, you might not have had executive power? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, part of the reason why some may love the role uh, and some may hate it. Um, what you become really good at as chief of staff is in leading uh, by influence. Uh, and what that means is that you uh, typically have to be very buttoned up in your data and in your why. You typically have to be very good at uh, relationship building and uh, forging trust with your colleagues and peers across the company. You should have uh, a good orientation towards uh, both strategy and um, execution. Uh, you should definitely land as one who's experienced in both. Uh, because you're undoubtedly going to be dealing with peers across the company who are either really, really strong on execution or really, really strong on strategy. And you're going to need both of them to play uh, at their part of the, of the orchestra when it's time. And so you being able to uh, effectively engage in that is, is pretty important. Um, you should be incredibly uh, planful and organized. Uh, the worst thing that any chief of staff can do is surprise uh, uh, his or her peers with a bunch of things that no one understands or knows how to do and not enough time to understand or know how to do it. It's a quick way to get to sort of, uh, as I call, uh, organ rejection. Um, so so what, what is great about the role is that you end up getting really, really good in a lot of areas really, really fast if you're going to be successful. And, um, and I have leveraged a lot of those skills, experiences, et cetera. I also, by the way, was never an individual contributor 
chief of staff uh, until I joined eBay. I actually joined eBay as an individual contributor because I wanted to take a break from leading people. Um, but in addition to that, I did have some, uh, ex some executive power because I always had a team of people who I was um, uh, simultaneously leading. So look for opportunities that allow that as well. I do um, see a question here. Well, I'm gonna leave it to you, Nicole. You tell me what I'm answering. Yes, of course, of course, no worries. Um, and Tatiana, you read my mind. So I was thinking the same exact thing. So Tatiana asks, or starts with, thank you for sharing your life story. It is amazing. How do you manage two careers, mayor and VP, within 24 hours of a day? It would be great to hear specifics. Um, do you use any specific strategy allocating your time to specific tasks? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, I typically start moving in the morning around 6 a.m. Uh, it is a, a slow move, but that is the, the time that I am ingesting everything that happened all over the world the night before. Uh, and sort of sorting out uh, what it is that I need to do for the day. I also, by the way, close the day uh, doing the same at around 11.30 at night. Um, and so really what I'm doing at six o'clock is asking myself, is there anything that I decided was important at 11.30 last night that has changed from everything that I've taken in, in the last you know, 30 minutes of morning opening activities? And if the answer is yes, I swarm around that. If the answer is no, I keep going with my plan. Uh, my day, my professional day, uh, my corporate day is uh, typically back to back. Uh, I love getting, in fact, my messages from Microsoft Outlook that say things like, you never have any time to, you know, think or process or plan because you're collaborating all day. Uh, and that is absolutely uh, true. It is the nature of the beast. Um, so the way that my day ends uh, is that around 5.30, I stop taking meetings. Sometimes it's later than that, but I try to do it around 5.30. Between 5.30 and 8 o'clock every night, I am doing something that is city-oriented. So I switch gears. It might be that I'm, you know, joining a council meeting or I'm reading packet material or I'm meeting with a resident or I am, you know, calling and making an ask of X, Y, and Z organizations because the city really needs them or I'm making a video or I'm doing something. But every day between the hours of 530 and eight o'clock, I'm doing something that is a city oriented unless it is city council meeting itself, which typically goes until midnight. So that day after five o'clock, I'm busted. Um, on the other days, when it's not city council meeting, uh, between 8 o'clock and 11.30 is when I do a lot of my personal processing, thinking, and planning that I would never have been able to do back-to-back uh, -back in the day. Now, I am a work in progress here, and I'm not suggesting that this is the right way to be. It is the, it is the way that I have organized around the dual identities that I have and the dual aspirations that I have. So it absolutely works for me. The average uh, professional contributor would be looking for how they could jumble all of this up inside of an eight o'clock to 5.30 day. Um, and I just know that because I have two jobs um, that my life is going to look like I have two jobs, period. There's no way around that. And I, good thing I enjoy both of those jobs because I'm really joyful in executing on them both. And of course, between, of course, there's always the mommy, I need to check in on how to do these fractions or mommy, I'm not, you know, making progress in this writing assignment. Can you help me? Um, and so there is a little bit of multitasking there, but I also, as I said, have a really great husband 
that pitches in and helps to keep the train on the track in a lot of ways there too. You are just such a force to be reckoned with. Like, and I know you have to know this, this has got to be something you hear all the time, but it's just so inspirational to see you doing all of this and to hear you talk about it so eloquently, so gracefully. So thank you. And so the next question, we have tons of questions in the chat. So this is fantastic. Thank you, everyone. So Kim asks, what are your go-to resources to understand what's going on around the world? That's a good question. So I will tell you, when you get a large enough uh, Facebook community, uh, you can see that right away. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that I know from when I worked at Facebook was that um, uh, smaller communities uh, were starting to uh, feel a little bit underseen in Facebook because signals that are felt by many get promoted, right? You start to see those signals loud and clear, right? There was a big earthquake in Japan or there was a big something going on in France. And, you know, we sort of all swarm around that, but we don't necessarily swarm around the, there were 20 girls that were kidnapped in Nigeria because the signal for that is really, really small. So that used to be the primary way until I realized that there were lots of signals that I just wasn't seeing. Um, it is a way that I still stay plugged into the world, and it's why I believe that having a diverse Facebook community is actually really, really helpful for me in that regard. But the thing that I also found in COVID was that that community was becoming depressing for me, and I didn't really want to feel uh, depressed every day because that sort of, you know, draws your energy away. Um, so the other signals that I added back in were the local news. The local news is surprisingly... Um, um, less sensational than the national news. Um, and it gives me a very clear sense of what's happening locally. I added in a few trusted uh, newspapers. I do not go for the sensational brands, but I do go for a lot of local brands, local stories that help me really get in touch with what's happening there without all of the sensation associated with trying to sell papers. Um, and so those, those things together are signals that I use in addition to my, um, uh, my elected community, which happens to be pretty insightful about things that are happening at the state, the federal, and even international levels uh, to help inform my judgment, particularly on policy issues. So I take a lot of signals uh, externally. Internally, I happen to uh, have responsibility for uh, the data science, data and insights teams, as well as all of the market and user insights teams. So they are also pretty insightful for me professionally uh, and helping me to keep pulse on what's happening in my industry as well. Thank you so much for filling us in there. And yes, Kim said that it's very negative and I agree. I've been feeling the exact same way about Facebook recently. Just there's Oof, there's a lot happening there. Um, perfect. And so uh, Marcy writes in and said, I really enjoyed hearing your personal stories. This has always been a challenge for me. I wonder if they are good enough, interesting enough. And so how do you decide what stories to share? Do you practice them? How do you discern between sharing and oversharing? And I just wanted to add something here because when you were talking about, you know, being a, uh, a leader, sorry, I wrote down the note, um, being a leader that is true and authentic and transparent, you know, on that same note, how do you draw the line there between how much you expose to your, your employees and your colleagues? Yeah, it's a good question. So I uh, am typically and classically one that lives aloud. 
Um, so I, I will typically uh, share as much as uh, the community has interest in knowing because I believe that the stories uh, that I've been given to share and the experiences that I've had are most profoundly felt by the world when they are talked about. So for example, when I was, when I was struggling to have children, I cried for eight years. I couldn't understand how I could be so incredibly cursed, right? To have all of these things ready to share with the world and completely unable to share them. And now that I have my children, I look back on those times and I say, well, why was I crying, right? There was a path, I just didn't see it. Um, and if anyone else is having a similar story or experience, the best thing that I can do is say, um, there's goodness on the other side of this. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to birth children, right? But there's always an answer. And the part about just being sort of open to what that answer might be for me in my life is a good one. But hearing that you're not alone in the journey is pretty important. Um, so for me, you know, I obviously try not to make people uncomfortable with, with the level of sharing. Um, but as long as they have the appetites to know, and there is honest intention in the knowing, right? It's not just something that sensational inquiring minds want to know. Um, I'm very willing to share. And, I, and I, I do consider myself to be a generous sharer in that regard. I love that. Thank you so much. And I know we are very appreciative and have had such an appetite for everything you've been sharing. Um, it's just always so amazing within this Power to Fly community to meet such successful and authentic women who bring them to their true selves. And we actually just had a chat before this one about bringing your authentic self to work and why it's important. Um, perfect. So thank you for all of this. And I know we don't really have time to get into any questions, but I know that MindBody is hiring. And so I did want to, you know, just leave the last bit of information there for you to share that and talk about, you know, after having worked at so many amazing companies, what is your favorite part about working at MindBody and what positions, if you can talk about any, are you hiring for currently? Yeah. So, you know, MindBody is the first company that I've ever worked for that kind of strikes the sweet spot between um, technology and mindfulness. Uh, you know, I have grown up in Silicon Valley. I've worked for brands that were, you know, relentlessly pursuing their path to winning. Um, and some of that doesn't always feel good to be on the inside of that, even if the outward manifestation of it is a really strong and good story. Uh, what I love about MindBody, and you can sense it right away uh, when you meet the people and when you start to, you know, get acclimated to the culture, um, is that it's a culture of tremendous kindness. Uh, it really does seek to uh, understand uh, the many. It seeks to, you know, be uh, uh, radically inclusive, right? It's still working on uh, how it manifests in terms of diversity. Uh, as a company because of, you know, sort of where it's located uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, but, but it stands towards uh, inclusion uh, is so strong. You feel it so clearly. It is the first place where I think I could have um, survived this, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, feeling like I could still walk in with a lot of dignity, still have 
things to say on the matter and be respected for those things and also things to say on the matter of tech and on being, you know, and, and on competing and winning in the world of wellness, right? I mean, these two things are really important to me as a leader. Um, so um, to talk about some of the roles that we are hiring for, I want to kind of put some swaths of buckets out there. The first is uh, we are absolutely looking for solutions architects that are helping us to uh, take our many uh, uh, products and platforms that we have acquired over the years and help us uh, bring those into a wellness platform that is uh, easier to scale and easier to engage with from, uh, from a community, from a customer and from a partner perspective. Uh, Related to that, we are looking for UI UXers that are uh, excited about helping us to define our uh, unified experience across our segments. So we've got a fitness and integrative health segment. We've got a salon and spa segment. Uh, arguably, these uh, segments draw different attention, different customers for different reasons. Um, but the platform experience, there's a whole lot of commonality between the two. So we're looking for UXers that help us to find the path toward uh, unified experiences. Uh, we're also uh, looking for some, uh, some very specific kinds of uh, engineers in the US. For example, our Bowtie team, which is our uh, uh, messaging platform that, uh, that processes using uh, natu natural language processors. The whole idea of our Bowtie product is that we remove the role or the need for a front desk agent to be taking in all the calls and contacts that would otherwise be coming. And instead, uh, you're communicating with uh, a natural language processor that is interacting with you as if it were a person and answering your questions in a very thoughtful way, scheduling your appointments in a very thoughtful way and helping you to head off what could be problems with your schedule or with the practitioner's schedule um, proactively. Um, so our Bowtie team in particular is looking for skilled AI, ML engineers that have specific depth in uh, natural language processing and you know we're looking to hire in that area. Uh, that's all in the US uh, and we have a flexible uh, work model now. COVID has kind of forced us all to be very open with where we hire around the world. So, uh, so we've been very open to the idea that we're gonna staff uh, around the world for these uh, positions, but specifically these are the ones that we're looking to staff in the US. Uh, and then we have a big uh, hiring uh, mission in Pune, uh, where we're bringing in, we're, we're building a whole center of excellence there uh, to be uh, part of our engineering growth engine for our teams. Uh, and so there we're looking for everything from what we call HIPPLES or, you know, right out of college hires, all the way up to, you know, very senior engineering leaders. We're looking for POs there. We're looking for UI, UXers there. And we're also looking for supporting uh, uh, supporting cast in that market as well, which might be doing things like release management and or, you know, production operations and, you know, all of the accoutrements that go along with running a product in production. Um, so, uh, so we're doing, I won't say we're doing a lot of hiring, but we are doing some key hiring in the U U.S. and um, looking for lots and lots of uh, talented women uh, and allies to apply and to be part of this amazing engine that we call MindBody. I love it. I just want to say thank you so much for such an amazing conversation, for giving us so many 
nuggets of inspiration and for truly just doing your work and being yourself. It's really been an amazing experience for me to be here and talk to you and listen to you. And I'm so happy that you were able to share all this with our community. And so I just want to say thank you. And thank you to everyone who joined. I cannot wait to see you on another chat and learn. Um, and so with that, Regina, if you want to send us off with any last words of wisdom, and then we will sign off. Ha! Well, my final thing is just to express my deep gratitude. Thank you for staying on and for listening for so long. Um, and I also want to express that I am a very open and engaging um, uh, leader to continue dialogue. So if you find that you want to chat more, you have a burning question that you didn't have an opportunity to ask, you can reach me on LinkedIn or Facebook, any one of those places, and I'm pretty much always present. Thank Amazing. you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Have an awesome day.